Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. This is the final installment of our Autistic Sex series. Thanks so much for joining me for the last month and this incredible conversation that we have had with some of the biggest experts in the field of relationships and sex. I'm so excited because today my guest is Angela Lacascio. But before that, I want to share a little something with you that's coming up. And I know you guys are excited. I've been getting tons of messages from you. And you know, I've been on vacation this month. So I'm sitting here recording in my flip flops. <laughs> that's just part of my summer fun this month. Um, so we have in August, August 1st, to be precise, we are kicking off Autistics in the Workforce. This is part of the Neurodistinct Workforce Movement and the campaign that I am spearheading. We will be having conversations from both sides of the table around neurodiversity in business. We're going to be talking about needs, accommodations, burnout, work-life harmony, and the alignment factor. We're also going to be talking and diving into communications. What are some of the biggest, most common miscommunications between neurotypes in the workforce? What's the translation for both neurotypes? And how do we work more effectively and communicate more efficiently within teams of mixed neurotypes? We will also be going and discussing more about workforce culture and social norms. What's happening in, the, in today's market? What is changing? What are people looking at? How are we as neurodivergent people making an impact in the business world? And how is the business world making sure that we can make the impact that we know we bring to the table with all of our skills? We're also going to be diving in and talking and getting real granular about our current economic climate. I have some fantastic human resource and recruiter guests that will be coming to share. I've got neurotypicals. I've got neurodivergent people that are going to be talking about what is the current climate what's hiring, who's hiring, and what's going on. Because if you guys are following the business world and all of the magazines, you know, Fast Company, Inc., Harvard Business Review, if you've read anything in the last week, topping the charts has been Google's announcement that they are putting up a hiring freeze between now and the end of the year. They hired 10,000 employees between January and June 1st. Um, but until they move forward until 2023, all of those positions other than key positions will be put on hold. We know that with inflation happening right now, the job market is shifting very quickly. The great resignation brought about a lot of freedom. People could resign from their jobs and, and very easily find another one within a short amount of time. With inflation, with companies now looking, looking to tighten their budgeting belts, I also want to talk about how is that going to impact or influence or could possibly influence if we're not speaking up and bringing attention to it, the neurodiversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion departments for many companies. When they look to trim from their budget, I don't want them looking at DE&I because the research has shown in historical situations where we've had it or experienced an economic downturn, those companies who kept those diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in place thrived and came out on the other side. When there was an upturn, they were doing much better and were better positioned within their industry than those companies and businesses who did not. So there's a lot to be said for our beautiful, wonderfully wired brains and how we help solve and find resolutions and, and create and have innovation even in economic downturn. So we're going to be talking and diving into all of this and more this month coming up in August. So as we're wrapping up our sex series, just keep in the back of your mind, we got some fun, good quality conversations coming up around autistics in the workforce in August. Let's get started. Welcome to the show, guys. I have a special episode as part of our Sizzling Sexy Summer Series here in Mind Your Autistic Brain as we're talking all about autistic sex this month. And my guest today is Angela Lacascio. And she is the head of a company called Mama Pistachio. She is a sensory integration specialist. She is a sexologist. She is autistic and ADHD. She is queer. She's a marine wife. And y'all, she's our people. 
totally our people. And I want you to join us for this conversation today because Angela and I are going to be talking about sexual identification, navigating and just exploring in that area. Because for a lot of us who are late identified, that's been part of our journey. It's like, well, I never really felt like I was completely one identity or another when it comes to sex. And we're also going to talk about sensory integration when it comes to sex, because that's a whole thing in and of itself for a lot of us. You know, I may like this kind of touch. I may not like that kind of smell and all of the things that make sex part of our life because sex happens in every aspect of our life. Angela will dive into this and I love how she thinks. I love what she looks into, but we're also going to be looking at how sex is affecting us in the bedroom and outside of the bedroom because it all talks to each other. It all informs the other, the other area. So we're going to be diving in. Welcome to the show, Angela. I am so excited. You are here today and we are having this conversation. This is a huge one. It is so huge. Um, not even, not even close to being talked about anywhere near enough. So I am so glad that, uh, that we are here talking about this today because, oh my goodness, it's an important one. It really is. Angela, just to kind of kick us off, to let everybody know who you are, what you do, and, and how you got to be a sexologist talking about sensory integration, and how did you sort of take your journey from this is me to this is really me today, and really loving and embracing that journey share with us, how did that happen? Where, how did you get where you are today? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's a really, really long story. So I'm going to try to just make it as concise as I can, because I know we don't have like, you know, days to talk about this stuff. So, um, way back when, um, <laughs> when I was 15, I said, I'm going to be a sex therapist. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I want to do with my life. And of course, the world being what it is and the societal script and coming from a conservative family where I was being raised by my dad, my mom wasn't in my life, you know, like all of that stuff. Um, it was that's not what a young lady does. And of course, in my mind, I would get really irritated with that. I was trying at 15 to be this young lady. Um, I was very good. I found one friend who I really tried to copy and be just like her. Um, it didn't work very well. Um, I, I am not a traditionally feminine person. My femininity is, is, is different than what society says. That's why I call myself a genderqueer woman, because um, I do not fit in the mold of what it means to be a woman according to traditional society. Um, and I knew that from the time I was really young, you know, I was, I, I, as soon as I started having breasts, which was at a young age, um, I was ace bandaging. Like, I don't want these. I want to be a boy. I want to be like my brothers. Why can't I run around without my shirt on? This doesn't make sense to me. I liked girls. I liked boys. I liked everybody. Um, <laughs> Um, like I just didn't care and I didn't see the differences. Um, I was also very, um, aware of the touches that I liked and that I didn't like. And I knew that the touches that were hard and forceful, um, squeezy made me feel good. And if it was soft and gentle, like it was supposed to be, I hated it. Um, <laughs> so I was, um, I was reading and I was learning and I was going to the library and I was getting all of these books and trying to learn about sexuality because I wanted to understand why is everybody saying this is what sex is supposed to be? And to me, that sounds really gross and I don't want that. This is what I want. And what does that say about me? Um, and uh, yeah, so that's where it all started. Um, and then, you know, I didn't go become a sex therapist because it wasn't the appropriate thing to do. Um, I went into um, medical transcription and then I moved on to being a patient care tech. And then the amazing doctor who I was working for, he was like, you are 
you know, I was a single mom at that time. He was like, you are too smart to be making $8 an hour for the rest of your life. You either need to go to school to be a doctor or go to school to be a teacher. Pick one. And if you don't go to college within such and such time period, I'm going to fire you. Because he knew that that would light a fire under my ass. Um, and I started going to college to be a teacher because I wanted it done differently than, than it was for me. I didn't like school. I was good at it, but I didn't like it. Um, oh, so well, I, you could join the ranks uh, of a whole bunch of us that could just really relate to that statement. Hello, everybody out right, there listening. <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah, not a pleasant experience, but yeah, sure. Um, and so I became a teacher. In my teaching, I loved being at work. I loved the classroom. Oh, by this time, 22 years old, diagnosed with ADHD. Cool. Um, so I'm going into teaching because I want to help people like me, of course. Um, and without really knowing and understanding, I set up a classroom that was a very safe space psychologically and for the nervous system. It had all of the sensory things that you can imagine. Um, I never used the overhead lights. I only had lamps. I used natural lighting if I had windows. I always tried to have a classroom that had a whole wall full of just windows so I didn't have to use lights at all. Um, I had tables instead of desks. Um, chairs that weren't attached to something, um, yoga balls, mats on the floor, rugs. And I'm talking, this is middle school and high school. Okay. This is not elementary school, right? I had Velcro under the tables. I had bands on the chairs for bouncing their feet. And something that the teachers would say when they came into my classroom is nobody is tapping their pencils on your desks. And it's so peaceful in your classroom. Why don't they tap their pencils? And I said, because I told them that I have ADHD and that it's very distracting for me and that I can't listen to them and give them my attention when they're doing that. Why did you tell them that? I'm like, because that's my truth. And so they don't tap their pencils on the desk. Not to mention they have all of these other things that they can do, right? Like they have soft textures that they can play with if they need that. And they have the rough textures and they don't need to do that because I created this space. I didn't think about it. That was just natural to me. If I were a student, what would I want my classroom to be like? Here it is. And I created, oh, I had a trampoline in there. Um, <laughs> you know, I let oh, them wear their I have headphones. a huge fan of trampolines. It's, it is part of one of the best things you can do for your vestibular stimulation. It is just oh my a gosh. wonderful thing because there is so much connection between your brain and your body. And when you're so bouncing, much. you get rhythm. When you catch air in between the two, magical mm -hmm. things happen in your brain. Oh, I it's love amazing. it. It's amazing. Yeah. Your classroom sounds like heaven. It really was. And the funny thing is, is I spent most of my time there. I, I would go and pick my son up and actually bring him back to my classroom. Um, my, um, I was married at that time, you know, by the time I had this classroom set up and had graduated and everything, I was um, married. And my husband had his own particular way of doing things. Um, and he was a very quiet person, but my home could not, I got rid of all of the stuff that I loved the most, my gargoyles, my witchy stuff, my, you know, I had castles and dragons and, and like, I'm a D and D fan. I got rid of like everything except for one of my books. Um, all of my like nightmare before Christmas stuff that I started collecting when I was in high school, I got rid of all of that stuff because, and these are the words that I was told it's time to grow up. Married people don't do that. That's not what moms do. And I really tried to fit into the mold of being like a soccer mom. Hi, not me. Um, but my classroom, once I was established and I had my classroom, it had all of that stuff. It had my Wicked Witch stuff. It had my uh, Nightmare Before Christmas stuff in it. And it was really my safe space. It was authentic and 100% me. So I wanted to spend most of my time there. So moving on from that, you can see how the sensory stuff is starting to come in. Oh, um, definitely. I, re I recognized in having conversations with teachers, I kind of moved up in the ranks. I really struggled at first. That's a story for a different day and how I had to learn how to get along with other people and, and, and 
be a leader because I was confrontational and, and the social justice thing was not right. And you're a sucky ass teacher because, um, was kind of my opinion of many people and I let people know, and it was difficult, but working and learning how to be a leader and how to talk to people and how to communicate and how to manage and set expectations and do all of that stuff. I started, um, recognizing that teacher burnout was all about stress management. It was all about authenticity um, and having to choose that acceptance piece over authenticity and about the relationships that these teachers were having at home that was creating this heightened, you know, constant, the sympathetic nervous system being on all the time, no engagement of the parasympathetic nervous system. Therefore, they could not only not only could they not manage their own nervous systems, how were they supposed to manage a class of 30 other people's nervous systems? Um, and then the hallways and all of that stuff in between. Um, and so when I would have conversations with them, sex lives would come up. People have always been comfortable talking to me about that. Um, so relationships and sex lives, and I was recognizing a pattern working with mostly women teachers and a few men, and it didn't matter whether they were men or women, there was this pattern. If things were going well at home and they were feeling fulfilled sec as a sexual being, even if they were asexual and they were able to be asexual with their partner, then they felt good as a sexual being, right? Because we are all sexual beings, including those who are asexual, right? That's what it is to be a mammal. So <laughs> um, I, in recognizing that, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I, I, how can I help them? How can I help them? How can I help them in order to help the school? And then my son became a Marine. And my husband, who's 15 years younger than I am, this is a different husband by now, um, <laughs> uh 15 years younger than i am decided to join as well and i had said i was doing my second master's degree by, by this time in management um, in school um, administration and i was in my internship and it was all coming down to the end and here we are and it's good and we moved and i said cool i'm gonna take this last $20,000 that I have that I would have spent on finishing this master's degree and getting all of that established. And I'm going to throw it out the window and I'm going to put all of this into becoming a sexologist. And I'm going to become a certified sexologist. I'm going to learn everything I can and completely immerse myself into human sexuality because that's how I'm going to make an impact to help teachers help their kids. Oh my gosh. We, we just, we, I need a button that has like a cheer. <laughs> I really do. I'm just, I'm going to do my silent and flappy, happy thing over here because, oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. Um, and just so you know, you were joining the ranks of other women who have younger men, mine's 20 plus years younger than me. So, <laughs> I mean, is it part of the thing where I don't quite understand my age? Because I certainly don't feel 45 and I don't recognize myself as 40. Exactly. Exactly. And most honestly, most of the people who are in my life who I hang out with and do things with are 15 years younger than me or so. Just mm -hmm. how it is. I'm the same way. And it's so, <laughs> it, I have this conversation on the regular, especially in the minor autistic brain community, you know, in our, in our group. And it's like, if we had somebody post the other day, it's like, okay, I got a birthday coming up, but is it just me that I don't feel my age? Like sometimes I feel really old, like physically I feel old, but like mentally I never feel my age. I'm like, oh, I totally get you on that one. Yeah. There's a disconnect there that I recognize. Um, yeah. Like I, I actually tried to do this whole thing where I was um, working with empty nest moms because I was going through that and I was like, I can, you know, I can understand this stuff. I don't understand neurotypical empty nest moms. I don't. Their experience is not my experience at all. So that was definitely not something where I could, I could not help there. 
um, I could provide facts, but I could not provide any emotional support because it did not make sense to me. It's so interesting that you say that because you know, my son, my oldest son is 19 and I, it was kind of strange because, you know, my husband and I, by, you know, we traded off. And he was like, okay, I've been the full-time mom while you've been overseas. So I want you to have this opportunity. And he was like, I want this opportunity. So, you know, two, three years ago, we did a big switch. So I'm the, I'm the weekend parent and he's the full-time parent. And I experienced that whole empty nesting, but I did it a very different way. And, you know, and my mom was so funny. She was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, I'm excited for them. I'm okay. I mean, yes, my heart, I miss them every day, like the presence and all the stuff, but I'm not, I didn't have the same experience that, you know, my friends that I now see their kids are going off to college, you know, they're all about the same age now and their experience is very different. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't get it, but all right. I I feel you. I mean, I'm here to support you and I'm with you, but your neurotypical experience is not what I got. Yeah, I absolutely. And um and because we're talking about sex, does that affect you as a sexual being? It absolutely does. When you do not experience this profound this profound loss when your children grow, like to me, the logical progression of being a mother is that your child grows up they move out of the house, they do their thing, they are their own human being. Yay, cool. It, it's not that I don't have emotions. I have cried and cried and cried because I miss my, so I didn't see him for almost two years. Um, you know, after he, like, I didn't hear his voice, literally did not hear his voice for, it was almost a year because he was on a ship out in the middle and it was COVID and it got extended. and and. I didn't, not only did I not see him, but I didn't hear his voice and I cried and I missed him. But I, my experience is not the same one that I hear from so many. And I, and I, I have to listen and I have to try to pick it apart to understand and connect with it. And um, so for those of us who don't have that, like the depressive and the high anxiety part, um, of the empty nesting, yay us, because we are allowed to step into ourselves, step into our authenticity, step into exploring our sexuality, and just taking up space, sometimes for the first time in our lives. Oh, yes, that truly did happen to me as part of that experience. <laughs> it's like, I had all this new knowledge and awareness that not only was I ADHD, I was autistic. And, you know, I had done all this work to help myself, you know, recover from burnout. Cause I finally recognized, oh my gosh, I've been in burnout since I was six years old. And I've been on this chronic cycle loop of burnout for almost four decades. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like for me to live a life that is not overwhelming and chronically draining and putting me into a place where I can't function? What does that look like for me? And those small incremental steps. And in that same window of, you know, reclaiming my health after being really sick for several years and all of these things, I was able to take that time and also go, well, I want to explore my sexuality because I never had the opportunity to do that before. I never gave myself the allowance to do that. I didn't know that I could do that. Right. Yeah. So how does somebody start just sort of the exploration of sexual identity as an adult? Um, well, sex is all about the senses. 
It really is. And that's why there are all of these different types of like certifications that people can get in different types of therapies. And one of them is called Sensei Focus. And then there's this whole like body positivity movement and they're all of this. And, and there's this self-awareness piece. So we have to explore that. We have to explore the sensory aspect of it. And we have to explore societal scripts that create shame. Because as an autistic individual, the way you interpret the world through your senses can be very different than for others. And that can create some shame. If you are someone who can only relax by being held down or by being um, squeezed or getting a spanking or something like that. And, and you have held this shame all your life of why do I feel good and sexy when these things happen? Why maybe have I gotten into relationships with the wrong people because the sex is good because they're beating my ass and not in a good way? But the sex is good because of that. And that's the only kind of person who I can enjoy sex with, even if the rest of it is horrible for me. And I know that there are people listening right now who have had that experience because I've talked to a lot of people who have had that experience. And it's I consistently am only interested in the bad boys who are not nice to me. OK, well, let's break this down. And sometimes it's the psychological piece of it, but so often it's the physical piece of it um, where they get slapped and it turns them on. Oxytocin gets released and they love this person who isn't necessarily able to love them back in a safe way. Um, so we have to explore that and we have to allow ourselves to let go of the shame to be able to explore that in a society that says this is bad, that BDSM is an ugly thing, that it's a bad thing, and that it means that you are a bad human being. Oh, and that is such an important place to talk about because for so many of us in the autistic community, you know, there is a large percentage that BDSM is the place that we feel most comfortable with the place where people have found their structure, there's rules, Yeah, you know, for the first time, like, you know, I don't know if you want to call it regular sex, but I mean, for lack of another word, like regular sex, you know, like just mm -hmm. missionary thing, you're guessing at everything. Whereas in a BDSM relationship or an environment, there's very clear roles. There's very clear rules and expectations and when you've got that black and white, clear cut way to navigate sex, yeah, it allows you to relax. But then there's and this other huge. part. Yeah, it's huge. And there's this other part, though, that you still have from the societal norms that does feel shaming, especially if you're a woman and it's like, you shouldn't like that. You shouldn't enjoy that. That means you're a quote unquote bad girl you know, or whatever you heard growing up. And it's like, but then you've got these things, you know, like the Madonna whore thing. It's like, oh, you should be, you know, you should be Donna Reed on the street. You should be the freak in the sheets and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And so you get these mixed messages and, you're, and as an autistic person, you're just like, well, what the heck do I do with any of this? I don't know right. whether to people go blind, right? Right, right. It's very confusing. The messages that we get um, through media, holy shit. Um, it's very confusing. Um, and a safe BDSM relationship. Um, okay, so I will just very specifically, BDSM has many different components. So we have bondage, and then the DS has a couple of different things. So we have discipline and we also have dominance. The S, we have submission and we also have sadomasochism. So all of that kind of 
the DS is one of those things that so many people don't understand. Um, how somebody who maybe is asexual also participates in a BDSM relationship. And that's because of some of those things that you're talking about, those very clear cut rules and negotiations where I get to say, this is what I want. This is what I need in order to create a safe space. So for some that might look like a, a very successful individual who is on fire, they're a leader within their community and they kick ass all the time and everybody's like, they are so powerful and so strong. And they come home and they have to do that same thing at home all the time. Do they ever get a break? No. So for some of these people, they will seek out the opportunity to be submissive, whether it is sexually or emotionally, so that they can have that complete engagement of their parasympathetic nervous system and be able to come down. And it doesn't matter whether it doesn't matter what your gender is, right? Um, you that can happen for any gender. And it's a really beautiful thing that we don't necessarily understand the impact that it has on us sexually, but also in every single aspect of our life. And I love that because that's, that's the area that you really speak to so beautifully, Angela, is it's all aspects of our life. And, you know, I think this sort of leads us into how do we integrate the sensory and in, in our preferences and our needs, because when we're talking about sex and we're talking about what we need to have a, a, a zone of safety as Allie and I call it in coaching, we call it our zone of safety. It's like, I feel safe and I can allow myself and that to be in the moment and to really fully get to that place. You have to find some balance and sort of what you referenced there. It's like, if you're having to show up and you're having to make decisions all day long, you hit something called decision fatigue. You get home. The last thing you want to do is make decisions. You want somebody else rocking and rolling and you just say, okay, and do whatever, because your bandwidth, your energy, your spoon allocation, and your ability to make more decisions throughout the entire rest of your day after you've done it all day long at work, man, you got to have a break. You've got to have some balance. That same thing happens in every other aspect of our lives, and it all impacts our sex. Yeah, um, that's the beauty of intersectional thinking. Right. So many of us hear intersectionality and we think, um, OK, this is recognizing my experiences as an autistic. As an autistic um, woman, as an autistic woman of color, as an autistic um, businessman of color, it goes way beyond that. Like, let's let's pull this down and recognize that intersectionality is every single experience that we have as a human being and how it affects and intersects our perception of every single other experience that we have as a human being. And so when we look at the wellness wheel and we have all of these things on their physical health, emotional health, um, financial health, eight different ones on most of the wellness wheels. Where does sexuality go? Where where should I? Oh, that goes in physical health. Wait a minute. It goes in emotional health. Wait a minute. It goes in all of it. It is underlying these things. They all intersect. And because of that, I think that sexuality should have its own space on the wellness wheel. Um, I am a member. I think of it needs to have its own space in every conversation. It really does. It needs to be, you know, we need to have less um, fear of having that conversation. Um, it, it has gotten so bad in the workplace that the, the sexual harassment issues that people can't have conversations about sex, even with a friend and somebody, a confidant who they have at work, they can't have that conversation that maybe could help them actually be more productive employees. 
So we can't even take sex out of work because it is part of the human experience. It's part of who we are. Um, and, and, you know, I have a Discord server and part of my Discord server um, is based on sexuality. So I have the, the workspace, I have the neurodivergent space, I have the queer space, and then I have a space for mature conversation. And within that we have um, BDSM, kink, all of that. And then I have a private vetted channel um, specifically for sexuality professionals and sex workers. Because that's another thing, that that's its whole other, other space. And um, there are a lot of autistic folks who work in those professions. Oh yeah, we had we had an autistic sex worker come to the autistic art club uh, two weeks ago, and it was phenomenal. And we had some amazing conversations with her, uh, you know, as we were working through and, and doing an art project that she led because she's also an artist, um, and she also has some health issues. So you know, that was the, that is the way that she is able to provide and sustain herself. Um, and I think so often that's just left out of the conversation, you know, it's dismissed, it's overlooked. And I mean, if you look at the sex worker industry, and if you look at BDSM and kink, I mean, the higher percentage are us. Yeah. You I mean, Let's just be real. Without the support that we need. Yes. From medical exactly. professionals, um, from from society in general. Um, and you you could I could go on and on and on about my feelings about laws and sex working. Um, but there you go. Let's look at those intersections. There are no protections out there for sex workers. Mm-hmm. And there are very, very, very few and little protections and discussions happening for neurodivergent folks and their life experience. So true. So how do we, Angela, how do we take all of this and sort of start pulling it together where somebody might be right now to just start looking at sensory integration? I mean, from the standpoint of our neurodistinct brains and bodies, because it's not just our brains, it's also our bodies, it's our nervous system. So what are some things that we could start experimenting or trying or thinking about or reflecting on to help us have a greater awareness of our sensory system? And how do we start moving forward when we are really feeling very heightened, when our our nervous system is overwhelmed or underwhelmed? How do we start navigating this space? Um, First of all, um, let me just say, just breathe is not going to do it for you. Um, I am a certified meditation instructor, and I believe in the power of meditation. However, that whole process um, went right into all of this other stress management. If you are too stressed out to take a breath, then just breathe isn't going to work for you. So let's back it up a little bit. Um, yeah, because when somebody says just breathe and you're already stressed, you're breathing way up here in your chest. You're not getting those deep diaphragm breaths that are actually going to help release anything unless you've practiced it when you're not stressed. Correct. Correct. So I have a book. Um, it's a very small little booklet that makes it easy and is very easily accessible to anybody. I'll provide you with the link for that so that you can share that um, because that's it, it, it's called, you know, like when just breathe kind of burns your ass, like makes you want to kill somebody. I'm going to throat punch you if you tell me to just breathe one more time. Um, (laughs) um, So, so that is something that can help that talks about different, um, different ways to engage the parasympathetic nervous system that work people can pick from it. Um, Another thing um, that I have is a checklist. Um, I have, it's a Google form. It sends your results to your email um, without any need for me to have your email and I don't send people messages and hey, unless somebody asks me to. Um, But that's a really great quick way to kind of look and say what works for me, what doesn't work for me. Um, And then on top of that, I also have an Excel um, sheet. All of this is free stuff. Um, I have an Excel sheet that has different ways. Once you look at that little checklist, then you can say, okay, cool. These are some things that I need. Here's on this checklist. Here are some activities that I can do. Um, Like, how is it that I can vacuum and be horny after? 
oh, because I just did some heavy work and I regulated my nervous system by vacuuming the house. And now I feel good and can take a minute to actually understand that my partner's ass looks really good right now. Um, <laughs> or how is it that everybody in the world can take a shower and feel sexy and just the thought of that completely turns the switch off. I don't want to be wet. I don't want to get in the sh shower sex. Not happening. Um, understanding those things about ourselves. Um, so really, it's just a matter of starting to get curious about the sensory things that you like and understanding that there's more than the five senses. Right? Like, hello, we could have like 10 episodes just on the senses um, and talking oh, about we, one. We have, to, right? we have to come back and do that for sure. Right. Absolutely. Because each and every one of them has a different role to play. And then when you throw them all together in the mix, um, it can either be a disaster for great sex or it can be truly great sex. But we have to know. We have to get curious. We have to allow ourselves to be curious and ask questions and start using some of the resources that are available. Um, a lot of them are available for kids. Um, I have made mine available for adults and specifically tuned to adults and the activities that adults um, like and enjoy. At work, yes. right, all day long, yeah. right, hey. all day long. Um, if we're being honest, like my, I don't specifically sit all day long and talk about sex as a sexologist. I also talk about what does the work environment look like? What are you experiencing all day long that is contributing to either you having the energy or not having the energy to partake in sexual activity when you want to? Oh, and that is one that you guys have been around for a hot second. You know, I'm always talking about this we use up and burn more mental energy than the neuromajority brain. Our brain might be lighting up in five and six areas, seven areas to do the same exact task. The neuromajority brain only lights up three or four. So they're consuming less energy. So if you're at work all day and you're not aware of these things and you haven't put things in place to help regulate your energy and regulate your body and all the things that happen as a result of that added stress and consumption of energy, you're going to get home. And the last thing you're going to want to do is have sex. Last that your partner looks at you and you're like, don't even look at me like that. I am too tired. <laughs> don't even look in my general direction. But, but you know that there's this part of you, but also there's like, man, I wish I wasn't so tired because I would love right. to really, really wonderful sex with you right now. And so it was like, how that conversation we... can happen. That conversation can happen because you can have a protocol in place with your partner that there are certain things. So perhaps when you come home, you need 30 minutes where you are not talked to, you are not expected to give a hug, make eye contact, give a kiss, anything like that. Maybe that's what you need. Another person, they may need. Immediately they walk in the door and their partner meets them with a weighted blanket. They give them a huge, gigantic hug. They hand them a bubbly drink in a cup that has a straw. They lay them on the couch, put the weighted blanket on them and lay on top of them. When we know, our sensory nervous system. When we know this, I have, I have goosebumps right now talking about it. When we know this, we can communicate it to other people and ask for them to help us. And they will. Oh my God. Say that again. Say that again. When we know what we need, we can communicate it to other people and ask them for help. And they will. And they so get out of the head and the story that you're telling yourself about all the stuff about being an inconvenience and being too much and all of that stuff because really and truthfully I used to tell myself all those same things and when I started to simply open up get vulnerable get courageous from a place of I now know this about myself this is what I need this is how you can help me meet this need so that I can be the very best thriving human I can be. And the response was not what I thought it was going to be. It was always, sure, I'll be glad to. I'm so glad you shared this with me. I would be honored to help you. 
Right. And let's be honest, that's not always the case. No, sometimes that people kind of buttheads. There are going to there are going to when you start speaking your truth for the first time in your life, there are going to be people who react badly to that mm-hmm. because of their own insecurity or because they're just an asshole. You know, if you have been in somebody's life forever and ever, and you've never asked for anything, you've never demanded or requested anything from them. And it's always been this easy relationship on their side of things, but you've been struggling the whole time and you're finally taken back and setting some boundaries. Mm-hmm. You can get some pushback. And you, you know can. what? I look at it and I'll just, I'll just tell you, Angela, this is how I look at it. I was like, that is the best self pruning experiment in the world. Cause you really get rid of the stuff that's not serving you in your life that you may not have recognized before. So I always look at it as like, Thank you for being in my life for the time that you were. I am sure at some point you served me in my life. Now you don't. Thank you for being here. Goodbye. Right. And and acknowledge and and lean on the people who are there because it it hurts and it's painful and it takes time to go through that. It does. But most of the time, most of the time people are grateful to not have to guess. My husband is grateful that I tell him, this is what I need. You don't have to guess. You don't, I'm not going to create some bubble where you have to guess what I want. There's this great, there's this quote out there and it's attributed to Frida Kahlo, but there's no proof that she actually said this. Um, But it is something to the effect of if I have to tell him what I need, then it's not worth it. And I don't need him. And that's exactly the opposite. People are not mind readers. It doesn't matter if they are the world's best psychic or the world's best psychologist. People are not mind readers. And your zone of safety is what I call the zone of consent, because I take everything back to that sexuality thing. And consent goes way beyond the bedroom. Um, way beyond the genitals. Okay. Um, so when we are within our zone of consent, we speak our truth. We say what we want, we say what we need. And we negotiate that with the people, whoever we're interacting with. And that is where safety happens. Um, and anytime we are outside of that zone of consent, our sympathetic nervous system is engaged. We are in fight flight and we are very, very, very unhappy. And most of us have been outside of our zone of consent for 98% of our lives. So for those of us who have spent 98% of our life on that outside of that, because I can live in proof right here, you know, for me, just so much of what you just described was the process that I had to get in touch with and understand and work through identifying, because I'm also alexithymic, identifying what I needed and what I wanted. And I'm still learning. I'm still discovering every day. And I probably will to the day I die. Well, yeah, because it can change. Oh, it's always changing. So, I mean, I'm changing all the time. And so I just, instead of looking at it as a terminal place of understanding, I look at it as this continuum of understanding. And part of that is I had to be able to start recognizing when my nervous system was way up and when it was way down and what things brought it up, what things lowered it. So, you know, do you have like maybe an exercise or something that you would suggest to, if you're feeling very overstimulated, what's something that we could start to reflect on or notice to bring it down. And if it's feeling really down, like those of us who are also ADHD and we get that under stimulation, how do we bring it up? You know, how do we start to navigate regulating our nervous system? Um, so self-care is bullshit. Um, (laughs) um, one, I'm not saying don't go get a massage and don't go to the spa and don't do that. That's great. Um, But that's also a little bit elitist and 
and not fair to people who can't do that. So everybody that's in this space, Angela knows I talk about self-care from the inside out because our self-care is not what you see on Instagram and Facebook about slapping right? cucumbers on your eyeballs. That does not work for us. Right. Right. I really truly believe that the um I'm not sure if you're familiar with um Amelia and Emily Nagoski um and their book um burnout uh where they talk about the, the stress response cycle um they um one of the things that they say is the answer to burnout is not self-care it's care and i know that there may be somebody who's listening who is like but i don't have anybody i don't have anybody that cares but that's what this community right here is about. There is a community right here to start that process of reaching out to another human being. None of us can do this alone. Many of us have done it alone for a long time and that is not safe. It is not within our nature, no matter how, no matter how introverted you are, everybody needs to know that there is another human being on this planet who they can go to if they need something. That's gonna be the number one way. Um, I cannot, I wish that I could say do this and it's going to help every time. Ultimately, it's breathing. There is, there is truth to that. Breathing, sleeping, and physical activity. These are the three things that work every single time. Okay, they work, it, our bodies need them. However, they are also the most difficult for us <laughs> to achieve. How can we, okay, my book gives all of this. What is a very quick way to take a deep breath? Laugh, watch a video, find somebody to make you laugh. What that does is it engages the sympathetic nervous system and it brings you up and then it engages the parasympathetic nervous system, which brings you back down, which is why when we're done with a big laugh, we go, and it's the breath that creates that calm. Crying does the same thing. So stim. Stimming is, <laughs> right? Like you've been sitting here watching me rock back and forth, right? This whole time. Because it's, it, 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 stimming is okay. It's safe. 99.9% um, .9 of the time, it's safe. Stimming is a safe thing that we do I have to leave that tiny little percentage in there because occasionally um, we can take it too far. Um, but there's usually something else going on there. Um, so stem. Allow yourself to stem. That's going to be the blanket for everybody. But as you know, that looks different for everybody. So I could give us something and it's going to work great for you. And this person sitting next to you, it's not going to. Um, so I don't wanna just say one thing. You're going to have to do a little bit of work to understand your sensory needs. But your senses and those sensory needs are the key to nervous system regulation. Yeah, they are. And you know, I always say, put your lab coat on, become the, the lead scientist and experimenter in your life, especially when it comes to your sensory needs and the things that you start to try and you don't, it's not, it's not a race guys. It's so, I know in late identified life, you're like, oh my gosh, I finally figured this out. This is life-changing. It is amazing. It is also overwhelming and exhausting because you think and feel like you've missed so much, yeah. like you're behind and you're late. And I just want to tell you, you're not, and it's okay. Right where you are in this moment is right exactly where you're supposed to be. We couldn't, we can, what if it and could have, would have shut ourselves to death, but that's not going to move us forward and service in the mm. best way just one step at a time. And it doesn't have to be a big step. It can be these tiny little micro steps. It can be just discovering, you know, a new flavor of coffee that you like. And there's that sensory, like you take a moment just to enjoy it and smell it and feel the cup in your hands and the taste on your lips. And you use that one thing to go, oh, that feels good. 
my body responds, my, my brain responds to this. Yep. It doesn't have to be these giant, huge things. And it hasn't have to, you're not making up for 40 years in a week, guys. Right, right, right. And it doesn't have to be the same thing every single time. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. Um, I'm going to give an example from my, my own experience. Cleaning. It's not something I enjoy doing. I don't purposefully go around and clean unless I've put it in my calendar that this is what I'm going to do. Um, however, my husband and I have had conversations where I will let him know, I really want to get X done this weekend. And if I'm really struggling to do it, he'll get me going on a conversation that heats me up, pisses me off and makes me really angry. And I will rage clean like none other. I will get the task done and feel good because I was productive, but also the physical activity that I'm putting into that cleaning by being angry and picking stuff up and slamming it down. And it makes me feel really, really good. That's the magic of knowing yourself and being able to communicate that with a partner and how to do it in a positive way. I love it. Cause then it also opens up the dialogue for your partner to share with you in mm -hmm. return. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, John Michael Carley and I had a conversation and I love this. He said, the best way to be an amazing lover is to simply look at, for, at your partner and go, how can I pleasure my partner? Because when you're, when you're seeking to please your partner, you're also going to please yourself and you're being yeah. a great attentive lover. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's hard for us to have those conversations. And that's where, you know, people like myself come in. Um, let me just throw this out there. For those who are listening, who have an occupational therapist, who are working with an occupational therapist, um, not all occupational therapists are versed in um, sexuality and they won't naturally ask you about it. It's okay to advocate for yourself. Um, I'll give you a link um, for this as well. I use with my clients, I use what's called the OPISI. Um, and it is, um, it's a tool for occupational therapists to um, utilize, to gauge throughout the process, the effect of whatever is happening with the body on a person's um, sexuality and sexual pleasure. Um, I'm happy to talk to, I know, right? I am happy to talk to any occupational therapist and let them know about that. I am I'll give you the link, like I said, so that people can share that with their occupational therapists. Um, because here's the thing. We, we are the coaches of our team. They're not. Our doctors are not. They're the players. And we get to decide. And we get to call the shots. We get to make the calls. And we are part of that team, not a passive participant. And once we can take that leap for our sexuality with our medical and our healthcare team and our family and our friends and everybody else, it opens up this confidence within us because we are in, within our authenticity that it can affect positively our relationships with every single person, our productivity. And I know some people don't like that word, but as human beings, we like to be productive. It feels good to us. So it helps you be more productive. It helps you be happier because you are healthier. Your wellness is in place. So it does matter. Oh, it so does. And I love that you have brought so many wonderful aspects to this conversation today. Angela, thank you so much for sharing your time, your voice, your insights, your wisdom, and your experiences with us today. If you're out there and you're wondering, how do I start this journey? Remember, it begins with you first, the relationship you have with yourself, your sexual relationship with your body and your mind and your senses. That's where you begin because until you know what you want and you're coaching your own team, you're empowered and leading from your very best empowered, thriving life. Nothing else anybody else says really matters. 
because until you know what matters to you first, and that's where we want you to get, we want it to matter to you first because you do matter. What you like, what you want, what you need, it matters. And it matters above all other things in your life. Before anybody else comes, you come first. You know, they say in the airplane, put your oxygen mask on yourself first before you put it on your child. There's a reason for that, folks. And Angela has been such a blessing today to come and have this conversation. Check out Mama Pistachio. She is on LinkedIn. I'm going to make sure I have all these amazing links that she shared. Her book, the Google checklist, the Excel sheet, um, and the OPISI for occupational therapists out there. Guys, thank you for being here today. Angela, thank you so much for joining me and having this conversation. You have been spectacular. I just love this so much. It's so good. Thank you for having me. If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or recurring supporter through either Buy Me a Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener and thank you for adding your voice to our story.